Good morning. Good morning. I would like to have a few words of prayer before I begin. Lord, thank you for bringing us all together as one in your body. May we celebrate today the glorious grace that you have given us, that we are one in you from now until eternity, for eternity. May today, as I share about the grace that you have given us in Christ, may my words touch hearts, and may we all be prepared then to go forward into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Okay, so I am going to talk about John Calvin today. And one thing that you need to know about Calvin is that he is what is considered a second-generation reformer. Um, we've been talking about Luther this year. Uh, Monday, we celebrated 500 years that he posted his 99 theses on the door of Wittenberg. John Calvin was born about seven years before that happened. So you can get, get an idea of the time. When he published his groundbreaking Institutes in, Christian, um, Institutes in Christianity in uh, 1536, uh, it was 10 years before Luther died. Um, he went much further in Luther in his understanding of grace, and that is what I'm hoping I can share with you today. Uh, first, we'll talk a little bit about kind of some of the differences between John Calvin and Luther before I move into really uh, what Calvin has given us that's so important in our life today. Luther, we have autobiographical and biographical information about Luther. We know that he went through this big crisis. We know that he had this very emotional conversion. Uh, we don't know as much about John Calvin. He was a much more private man. He also did not think that he should talk about himself. So we don't have a lot of biographical information about him. We do know that he was born into this wealthy French family. His father was a lawyer. He was being prepared for the law. But John Calvin's mother was a very devout Catholic, and he too became a very devout Catholic and wanted to enter the ministry. And his father, of course, wanted nothing to do with this. He sent him to the Sorbonne in Paris to study law. But the Sorbonne was a, just a beehive of activity and reforming activity. And Calvin became exposed to a lot of the teachings in the Catholic reform movement, different kinds of mo different movements that stress different things. But one of the things that he was really influenced by was this kind of devotion to Christ, a very much of a, a very deep spirituality. Um, think of Thomas Akempis, would have been one of the leaders in that movement that Calvin had been very influenced by. He also had a very deep Eucharistic devotion. And for Luther, although these things always are told a little less uh, complex than they really are. We kind of know Luther for the idea that he had this thing against the indulgences and he really struggled with the act of having to work towards your salvation. For Calvin, it was more the Eucharist, actually, that he was really upset about. He, um, at that time, you have to understand that the, the Mass was no longer really a communion the way we know of it. It was people came and they watched 
They watched the priest. Their understanding of it was that they were watching a priest offer a sacrifice that would be a propitiation for their sins. And if they watched it, they get just that little bit closer to heaven. People were scared to death to actually commune. They didn't, t I mean, when we say in the Lateran Council in 1215, said that everybody had to take the Eucharist once a year. Now that wasn't because they were limiting them to once a year, it was because people weren't taking it once a year. Because they were afraid that if they took it, if they touched, that very superstitious understanding, if they touched the bread or touched the cup and they weren't worthy, they might actually die. So people did not take communion the way that we know it. Um, in some ways it was a drama. And private masses proliferated, wealthy people paid to have masses performed for the dead uh, so that they would know that would earn their relatives less time in purgatory. And as Calvin became more deeply entrenched in reading the scriptures, he discovered that salvation was not to be linked with these outward acts that the church was the mediator of. He came to understand that Christ was our mediator, not the church. And that was his big struggle because he had a hard time. He understood authority. I mean, he was a lawyer and he had a really hard time breaking away from the church because he believed very much that the church somehow was the mediator between Christ and us. And it was in his kind of this epiphany that he had. And he calls his conversion sudden, not because he thought there was a sudden change in himself, but it was unexpected. He did not believe that he was going to leave Catholicism, but he did. It was more like Luther that he was forced out. He joined a young movement that was protesting the, um, the selling of the mass. And he got involved in a demonstration that's called the um, Affair of the Placards. In other words, they were going around Paris, you know, with these placards saying bad things about the mass and of the way it was. And of course, they all were rounded up and arrested. And some of the leaders of this movement were put in jail. Well, Calvin was able to flee to Switzerland, to Basel. But by this time, he was firmly uh, one who was of the evangelical faith. But when he wrote his Institutes of Christian Religion, he addressed them to the King of France because he wanted the King of France, he wanted to teach the King of France about the true religion. He was hoping that the King of France would convert and somehow that the church could be reformed within by the rulers. Well, of course that didn't happen. Instead, people were put in jail and eventually he did realize he had to make a break with the church. So when we talk about Calvin, we have to understand that he studied the scriptures as a humanist. He went back, he learned Greek, he learned Hebrew, he learned Latin, he uh, was influenced by Erasmus. So he's very deeply, deeply embedded in the scriptures. He knew the scriptures, he learned from them, and everything that he wrote came out of his knowledge of the scriptures. When you read the Institutes, it's just, one Bible verse after another, and he's probably just quoting it from memory. If it's not quoted exactly, it's because he's just quoting it from memory. But he can say the text, you know. So it's very, what I'm gonna be talking about today is some of his ideas. I'm not gonna be able to go into so much the scriptural basis for them, because we don't have time, but you need to know this all came from the scriptures. 
and that he considered himself to be a Timothy, not a Paul. He didn't have this Damascus Road experience. It was more of a gradual conversion, but he was one who had been raised up in the faith, and then he had this unexpected um, conversion to basically the evangelical faith and leaving the church. So what was some of the differences between Luther and Calvin? And I want to just kind of go back. This is kind of my take on Luther a little bit. Um, it's also some of it based on this fantastic lecture that I heard this Monday when we were celebrating the 500 years. But Luther's struggle was that he felt he was not perfect. He had a tremendous amount of guilt. He read 1 John where it says, you know, you must, anyone who does not love God cannot see God. Anyone who does not love Christ cannot see Christ. He knew that he could not be perfect. He could not perfectly love. And his understanding when he read Romans, the great gift of breakthrough that he was made was that he didn't need to be perfect, that Christ was perfect for him. However, he came to this rather in stages because in the beginning, he kind of ascribed to this idea of infused grace, that somehow we have to have grace before we can make that first step. And that first step towards God is something that actually must come within ourselves. And Luther came to understand that it could not come within ourselves. It only could be God, because God's love is the beginning of all good things in us. It was only God's love that saved us. For Luther, salvation was justification, sola justia. Only justification, that is how we come to God, that is how we are saved. Um, the righteousness of Christ, because I'm not perfect, we take righteousness Christ on ourselves. When God looks at us, he sees Christ, he doesn't see us, and we are forgiven. And it was very much a understanding that our status changed, but not our nature. We were still sinners. And, and Luther struggled the rest of his life. He felt like he was a sinner. He did not. He wrote more about grace than he wrote about sanctification because he was so worried that if we started talking about sanctification, we would start getting into works. Luther wanted to kick the book of James out of the canon. He just couldn't deal with the fact that there was somehow idea that we had something to do with our salvation. So sanctification was something that happened. Go back, go back, I'm sorry. Yeah, the clicker's not working, so we're having, I'm having to, there we go. Okay, there, stay there, okay. And then one more. Okay, go one. There, okay. Christ's righteousness that justifies us is alien because it does not originate with us. So, okay, next. I can get it to work. Legal fiction is a change in status, not a change in nature. I've already talked about that. But there was this idea of... It will? Okay. I don't think it does, though. That's backwards. So this Oops, sorry. Is forward, that's forward. Oh, that's maybe why it wasn't working. <laughs> that is so 
funny. Thank you, Matt. I had it on the first slide, and it, yeah, never mind. Okay, and nothing was happening. <laughs> okay, um, so let's keep going here. Okay, this is what I, okay, so sinners are attractive because they are loved by God. We're not attractive people. We never really become attractive people. We are not loved because we're attractive. They are not loved because they are attractive. They are attractive because they are loved by God. So, Luther to Calvin. What happens next? Okay, well, I already talked about he converted to Protestantism, but he expanded upon Luther's thoughts. Calvin agreed that there was no merits to works. He absolutely, as far as justification goes, he was totally on board with everything that Luther taught. But for Calvin, Christ's righteousness is not only imputed, it's imparted. And that is the hugest difference between Calvin and Luther. Because Calvin believed, yes, our status changed, but we also changed. And the reason we changed is because we became, in salvation, we became joined. Oops, sorry. We became joined with Christ, union with Christ. This was Calvin's huge breakthrough. So salvation is not that we're justified and forgiven only. Salvation is that we, in our baptism, are brought into union with Christ. Calvin said, we see that our whole salvation and all its parts are comprehended in Christ. So for, for, for Calvin, union with Christ brought not just justification, it also brought sanctification. We must understand that as long as Christ remains outside of us, so this idea of alien righteousness, Christ outside of us, it can't stop there. It's not just that, it's not a legal fiction, it's actually real. Um, the best analogy I've ever heard is that yes, it's a courtroom, but it's the adoption courtroom because something happens in the courtroom. We are adopted into Christ. All that he has suffered and done for the salvation of the human race remains useless and of no value for us. Therefore, to share with us what he has received from the Father, he had to become ours, and we had, he had to dwell within us. He goes on. This joining together of the head and the members, Christ and his body, that indwelling of Christ in our hearts, in short, that mystical union must be understood as the highest value of salvation. We do not therefore contemplate him outside of ourselves from afar in order that his righteousness may be imputed to us. Rather, we must put on Christ. So Calvin understood that in baptism, the Holy Spirit gives us the grace of God within and that we are changed. That for him was salvation, justified and sanctified. But it wasn't instant sanctification. This is another um, 
analogy that I think is a really great one, and it's called the great switch. Christ gets all, our sin, our death. We get his all, his life, his love. So when Calvin describes this moment of salvation, which is our union with Christ, he describes it as the believer is engrafted. This is not passive language. For Luther, a lot of it was very passive. We kind of passively receive this grace that God gives us. We kind of passively receive this alien righteousness. For Calvin, it was active. God was actively working. He was engrafting us into Christ. He was adopting us. He was joining us to Christ. Oh, this is great. Okay, here we go. All right. So, whoops. Okay, I don't know if you can read this or not, but this is the way it kind of is. I love this diagram because it shows that the believer is in Christ. We're joined to Christ's humanity, not to his divinity. Christ um, was a human being, and he had the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. And the way that we are like Christ, joined to Christ, is we have that same spirit that he had. So for Calvin, it was two graces in union. It was the grace of justification, and it was the grace of sanctification. They happened at the same time. It was simultaneous, our sanctification and our justification. So... Faith alone, sole fide, reconciles us to God. Justification, there we agree with Luther. But faith is not passive. It is energized by life in the spirit, sanctification, and it is the spirit who imparts to us Christ's life. Thus, Calvin remarkably asserts that justification and the first gift of sanctification, regeneration, are given at the same time in the one act of salvation. He does not understand that justification is the sum total of salvation. And neither does he believe that sanctification follows justification. The legal pronouncement in justification that we are found righteous with an alien righteousness outside of ourselves is not made any less true by also affirming that in the the second gift of salvation, of union, regeneration, Christ's righteousness now also dwells within us. It's outside of us, but it is also within us. Christ has given us, and this is from 1 Corinthians, Christ has given us for righteousness, wisdom, sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, Christ justifies no one who he does not at the same time sanctify. And this was in the 1541 Geneva uh, Catechism. When by faith we receive Christ as he is offered to us, he not only promises deliverance from death and reconciliation with God, but also the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not just rescuing us from death. It's also giving us a new life by which we are regenerated to the newness of life 
These things must necessarily be joined together, not separate, so as not to divide Christ from himself. So we are regenerated. But Calvin also believed that that was just the beginning of a life of pilgrimage, the life of becoming more like Christ. So the source of this life, of this transformation in our lives, is our union with Christ. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And what Calvin wrote about extensively in book three and book four is how do we deepen our union with Christ? That was Calvin's mission, basically. He was a pastor more than he was a theologian. He wanted people to be able to open the Bible and see Christ within us everywhere. He wanted to see Christ at the center of our life, Christ the one who is working to change us, and Christ the one that we is our only defense and our only righteousness. So our participation, our communion with Christ, there is another factor of that, and that's what Calvin called participation, participation in Christ. And that's the ongoing, that's like the now. Okay, we've been joined to Christ, we have a spirit within us, but the now is that we continue to commune with Christ within ourselves. So he brings forth in regeneration the influence of his spirit, but that only enables us to be strong in hope and patience this is Calvin's language, but I love it. To temperately keep ourselves from worldly snares, to bestir ourselves from the subjugation of carnal affections, and to continue earnestly in prayer. That meditation, on the, that's misspelled, on the life to come draws us upward. So that the Spirit of God reigns in us, that we give evidence of our adoption, that we walk in the fear of God, holding him as our Father, and giving God the honor that is due in him. That is the essence of what it means to be a Christian, that we give evidence of our adoption, and we walk in the fear of the Lord. So transformation through a deepening of our communion with Christ, how did Calvin believe that happened? He felt it happened first by allowing God's word to speak to our souls. He wrote a lot about the word being proclaimed in the congregation as being a word that is addressing each person in the congregation. He also believed very much. He had a whole very long treatise on prayer. If you haven't read it, it's in the third book of the Institutes. It's a beautiful treatise on prayer. Um, he devoted more of the institutes to prayer than to any other subject, which might be surprising to some of you just think of Calvin and predestination. Um, and Holy Communion. So as I mentioned, he had this very uh, much of a very uh, Eucharistic devotion, and he spent uh, his first edition of the Institutes of 1536, a quarter of it was about communion. And one of the things that Calvin wanted to do after he became involved in the reform movement is he wanted to try to get everybody together on communion. 
He thought it was really silly that everybody was fighting about what happened to the bread when he thought the most important thing was what happened to the people taking the bread. So this is what he wrote in 1536. And he actually, he was appealing to the Lutherans and he was appealing to the Zwinglians in this passage of um, the Institutes. So he's saying, if only the force of the sacrament had been examined and weighed, there would be quite enough to satisfy us. And these frightful contentions, and this is all about, you know, transubstantiation and consubstantiation, all of that, would not have arisen, and even within our memory that have miserably troubled the church, in fact, divided the church, <coughs> when men in their curiosity endeavored to define how Christ's body is present in the bread, those who feel thus do not pay attention in the first place to the necessity of asking how Christ's body, as it was given us, became an ours, and how his blood, as it was shed for us, became ours. But here is the key. That means to possess the whole Christ crucified and to become a participant in all his benefits. Our union with Christ is the special fruit of the Lord's Supper. So in other words, we take this teaching that is so central to Calvin on union with Christ as being the sum of our salvation, and he applies it directly to the celebration of the Eucharist. What happens in the Eucharist is that we remember, yes, we remember that Christ, that God has justified us, but in taking Christ into ourselves, we are experiencing a deepening of that union. And that was what Calvin was looking for in all of us, that we more deeply understand and embrace our union with Christ. So the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to confirm for us the Lord's body once for all so handed over us as now to be ours and also forever to be so that his blood was once for all so poured out for us as always to be ours. And again, Calvin just, he had such a beautiful Eucharistic devotion. He wrote so beautifully about the Eucharist and he really believed that because we take Christ into us, we know that Christ is within us. We're experiencing that deepening and it's sweetness and comfort to our souls. So he believed, he wrote a lot about how it was an accommodation to our senses, that God, that is why Christ actually initiated, uh, instituted the Lord's Supper. He wanted to give us a physical way of being with him after he died. And Calvin was like 500 years ahead of himself because now in neuroscience we're learning so much about how the brain is fired up when uh, we touch things, when we see things, symbols, how much that is so important to the way we think. So it's not, our thinking is actually changed by experiencing the Eucharist. You know, a long time ago, several years ago, 10 years ago, I was at a conference where there was someone that got up and he was talking, I think he was a Lutheran, um, <laughs> he was talking about grace and he was like so big on grace. God doesn't care what we do. He just loves us and we just need to embrace his love. And we're terrible people, but you know, God doesn't care if we're terrible people. And, and there was kind of truth in everything he said, but I just got a little confused listening to him because I thought, I think God does care about what I do and what I think and how I act. And then it just hit me. 
I don't even really need to think about these things anymore. I go forward every week and I receive communion. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. And somehow my brain doesn't have to figure these things out anymore. I just know. And I just know because I have been taking communion every Sunday for, at that time, 15 years. And I knew that it just changed me because I knew in my younger life, uh, I had really struggled with those issues that he was talking about. So this is what he wrote. There cannot be a spur which can pierce us more to the quick than when he makes us, so to speak, see with the eye, touch with the hand, and distinctly perceive this inestimable blessing of feeding on his own substance. And he wanted to say that, you know, unlike the Catholics, there's no act of salvation, there's no earning salvation by taking communion. We are, it doesn't change our position, our status in Christ. We are still justified and forgiven. But what we receive is that which we have every day. Every day we can pray, we, can igno- we don't need communion necessarily to deepen our presence with God. Um, Calvin really believed in the power of prayer. Um, but the Eucharist admonishes and incites us more strongly to recognize the blessings. So he instituted a lot of liturgical reforms in Geneva. Some of us kind of think he got rid of the Mass, you know, and that was terrible, you know, because we celebrate the Mass, we have more of the Mass. He didn't actually get rid of the Mass. I thought a lot of people, that's a really a misconception. Um, Calvin, the way they celebrated the Eucharist, it wasn't they just passed it around and said, think about it. There actually was, <laughs> there was actually a liturgy. He retained all of the important aspects of the liturgy, the parts that are really important to us. Um, so it, he retained like the Sursum Corda, you know, that beginning when, you know, the priest says um, that Christ is in his heaven and all must come down, that opening prayer of our Eucharist. He preserved that. He also preserved a form of the prayer of humble access. Um, there was a, a kind of a Eucharistic prayer, um, and there were the words of institution. Um, Calvin believed when the words of institution were spoken by the, the minister, that he was standing in for Christ. He was speaking Christ's words, and at that moment, that is when whatever happened, happened. It wasn't hocus pocus. It was because in the minister, Christ was addressing. The Holy Spirit, through the minister, was inviting people to come forward and to receive of Christ. And he felt at that point, those elements, in some way, became joined to Christ. It was a mystery. He didn't really get into a lot of, he thought what the Roman Catholic Church had done is made it very superstitious, so he rejected that. But he did believe that it was um, truly uh, Christ's flesh and blood. Not spiritually, truly. Um, So anyway, and the other thing about the worship is that it was no longer just sitting and watching. Everybody was involved from the very beginning. People were singing. People didn't sing in Catholic churches at that time. It was just professional choirs. Okay, people were singing. They were singing the Psalms. They sang the Creed. They sang the Lord's Prayer. People were very involved in the worship. And the other thing that I really like about it is that they had two tables at the front uh, where people actually sat around the tables. 
one for women and one for men, and they passed the communion. So it was very much, he tried to recreate. As people came forward to receive, they would sit at the table, and then the minister would go around and, so like just as we come forward and we receive, they actually came forward to tables. It must have taken a long time, but um, that was how they did it. So again, to receive any fruits from the sacrament is to have received him. After anyone deeply grasps his thoughts and meditates upon it, he will really understand how the body of Christ is offered to us in the sacrament, truly and effectively. So that is the end of my slide presentation. You can turn it off. Just close it maybe, do it, let do it, or pull out my, yeah. So do any of you have any questions? So I really was trying to do in the beginning was to show you how Calvin very much embraced this idea of union with Christ as salvation. And then in the Eucharist, he believed that that understanding was deepened in a very concrete and kind of incarnational way. Yes? So what have we as Anglicans done with Calvin in our 39 articles and our worship? That's a big question. So Rich is asking, so how do, what do Anglicans think about this? Um, well, first of all, Thomas Cranmer was very much influenced by Calvin. And the prayer book, the pr- a lot of the prayers in the first prayer book are very um, Calvinian, I guess is the best way to do it. But I am going to be teaching again in a month, and it's grace in the liturgy. So I'm actually going to be looking at some of the prayers uh, in our prayer book, how they originated and how they reflect basically a lot of these ideas about Calvin, because Cranmer very much embraced this idea of um, true, effective partaking, and that it brought us into union with Christ. That was, Cranmer embraced that idea. I don't know if it's in the 39 articles or not. 39 articles were very political. Cranmer didn't even write most of them, but he did write the prayer. Well, so. In ACNA, the 39 articles. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> are very significant. <laughs> yes. Um, could you expand a little more on the distinction between having uh, Luther's theology of, of grace being passive versus Calvin's being more active. Okay. How um, how would you like me to expand upon that? Uh, I, I just didn't understand what what the distinction. Is. Okay. Well, I think it kind of comes down to this idea that Luther very much believed that our status changed, that we were now in Christ. We are not perfect people. We need Christ's righteousness. The only reason we're forgiven is because. You know, Christ's righteousness, and the Father sees us, he sees Christ, and we're forgiven. But it, it doesn't really change our nature in any way. I mean, he was really afraid of drifting back into some sort of meritorial theology. So he didn't really want to talk a lot about sanctification. So in that sense, it was very passive. Um, yeah. And if you're interested, I could send you some sources your way if you wanted to read more about it, but that, does that help? Yeah. Okay. Yes? Um, you yourself mentioned that um, often when we think of Calvin for being in the ball, we think about the whole question of predestination. Yes. So how does grace work in his theology within the context of predestination? Well, Calvin, like Luther, Luther was also predestinarian. He didn't believe there was anything we could do to bring ourselves to faith, that God gave us the gift of faith. And he, I mean, he just, 
it's a mystery to know how we are given the gift of faith and others aren't. We can't really understand that. But that does not mean, therefore, that God has predestined some to help. It's that double predestination that is so problematic. That because we've been given the gift of faith because God chose us, that means he didn't choose other people. And that's just a tension. I just don't think we can, I don't think we can solve that one. Because there's nothing, I mean, Calvin, this is why Calvin was not afraid to talk about responding to God. And he wasn't afraid to talk about sanctification. Because unlike Luther, he knew we had something to do with it. That we, we respond to God. We have the choice to respond to that gift of faith or not respond to it. And our whole lives, we have that choice. And part of deepening our union with Christ is, in a sense, because we choose to deepen it. Not that that doesn't mean we're not saved, but if we want to grow in our sanctification, we need to choose to commune with God. That's Luther. Oh, that's Luther. Yeah. And I'm not a Luther expert. <laughs> so I can't really comment on that. Yes? Um, I've heard, I, I had some, this was years ago, but I heard somebody who really embraced Calvinism and had said something along the lines of, you know, I was evangelizing to somebody and he just wasn't getting it. And I was so grateful for Calvinism because what it told me was, God just hadn't chosen that person, so it really took the pressure off of me. <laughs> and so when I, when I heard that, it really turned me off to Calvinism. Yeah, and I it know. sounds like what you're saying is that no, it's like very much not what Calvin yeah. said at all. Like a lot of a lot about sanctification, a lot of work. Yeah. Actually, funny enough, different different from Luther that no, there is there is work to be done yeah. in your sanctification. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I. Definitely, I haven't done a history of Calvinism, but it would be kind of interesting if someone wanted to do it. There's a book out called Ten Myths about um, That's a really good book because people after Calvin took these teachings and really twisted it. And the thing about it is, this is just Augustine. Luther and Calvin were just embracing Augustine. You know, I mean, they all want to blame Calvin. Well, blame Augustine. Augustine scholar in here. But it was really, I mean, Luther was an Augustinian monk, you know, for goodness sakes. It was rediscovering Augustine that he came up with a lot of his ideas. Yes? Still unregenerate, 
and still singing, and so they probably weren't saved because he, he saw no evidence of a regenerated life in them. So he's very much have to see some sort of evidence of the Holy Spirit is working in that person. Mm-hmm. Um, does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he very, I mean, he, Calvin did a really interesting thing. He, he closed down all the monasteries in, um, in Geneva and turned them into schools and hospitals. But he took a lot of the monastic ideas and he incorporated, he wanted everybody to be a monk. He had, he embraced praying so many times a day. He embraced a lot of monastic practices of reading the Psalms. Um, he, good works, I mean, a lot of good works that were being done in the monasteries were now being done by deacons. He established his board of deacons. Um, there was a lot of charity going on in Geneva. I mean, Geneva was almost like a model city in a sense, and there's a lot of things about it that weren't working too, but um, he very much thought that spiritual practices, that monks practiced, they weren't just the monastery, they were for everyone. So, Thank you. 